Hey, greetings everybody, and welcome to another episode of Everyday Hope. Um, okay, I know, it's been a while since the last episode, Bad Dave. But I do have some excellent excuses. It's, uh, it's been a bit of a tsunami at my day job, and I haven't had as much time for other things. And plus, Justine and I remodeled the home office and disassembled my podcast workspace, so it's been a little weird over here. So, look, my apologies, and I have been duly chastised, but I'll attempt to get us back on track. I, I will take some spiritual metamucil so the Everyday Hope podcast can be more regular. So, let's just pick up in Revelation as if nothing happened. I won't say anything if you don't, right? Okay. So, today we come to the climactic chapters 15 and 16, which not only close this section of Revelation, but symbolically represent the end of time, when the awesome day of the Lord finally comes, and everything old passes away, and God brings about a new earth, and a new heaven, and a new restored life for all his people. And since I gave you plenty of time to review all of the previous episodes, you've probably recognized what's going on with the imagery in this passage. The seven bowls closely follow the seven trumpets, but instead of a partial impact, they seem to have a total and devastating effect. The bowls appear in the same four three forms in the previous series and bring destruction upon the earth and animal life, the sea and sea life, the rivers and springs of fresh water, the heavenly bodies, this, this time specifically the sun, darkness and pain, this time specifically the evil city representing God's enemies, the Euphrates, and then the seventh bowl is the day of the Lord. Now, I hope you didn't miss the seventh bowl in the language used in verse 18. It ought to sound very familiar. If it doesn't, let me remind you. In Revelation 8, 5, in the seventh seal, it says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then in Revelation 11.19, and the seventh trumpet, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now here in Revelation 16, 18 in the seventh bowl, it says, And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake such as had not occurred since people were upon the earth. So violent was that earthquake. See, the language is too familiar for us not to recognize the connection. The day of the Lord, which God's people have been anticipating for millennia, comes with thunder and lightning and rumblings of an earthquake. Now, the language of the entire section of the bowls is so similar to the trumpets, we can't ignore it. But there are three significant differences between the bowls and the trumpets that I don't want you to miss. First, as I said, the impact here is total, not partial as it was in the trumpets. If you remember, the trumpets damaged one-third of the land and the sea and the waters and the heavenly bodies, but the bowl judgments affect all of what they hit. There is the distinct sense that while the trumpet judgments were designed to get people's attention, That time is past, and the end has come. Second, every bowl seems to have a direct impact on human life, where in the trumpets that impact was sometimes indirect. The scorching of the sun directly affects humans. The plague on the land is a sore on all unbelievers. The waters are no longer drinkable. Everything seems to hit humanity head-on in this section. 
Again, there's the sense that while God tried one last time to get the world's attention with the trumpets, that time has passed and his judgment has come. And third, we're reminded in this series that God is not capricious or malevolent. His judgment is righteous. I find it interesting that we're not allowed to let these judgments pass with that frail human evaluation of how could a loving God do this? An evaluation which conveniently ignores how long God has tried to get our attention and how righteous his judgment truly is. What God does in chapter 16 is not out of malicious anger, but out of righteousness that cannot abide sin. And after all the warnings and pleas and love, all that's left is judgment for those who worship the beast. Now, the end of the world depicted in this passage culminates in the popular and well-known image of Armageddon, where the armies of God's enemies assemble in a certain place, and the armies of God, led by Christ, which you see in a later chapter, utterly destroy them as promised. This is the fulfillment of an ancient Hebrew eschatological expectation expressed in many documents, including some of the apocryphal texts, as well as some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found at Qumran. We should be expecting this final battle, and we should be expecting the utter defeat of God's enemies. That's what we've been promised all along. The ensuing chapters describe events related to that day. In 17, we see the fate of the great horror and the beast. In 18, we see the fall of Babylon, the symbolic city of evil, which John's first readers would clearly have seen as Rome, and which we can see as the central seat of secular power set up in opposition to Christ and his kingdom. In 19, there is great rejoicing in heaven. Then the armies of God, led by Jesus himself, utterly destroy the armies amassed against them. Then we read of Satan's doom and the establishment of God's eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, where we will live in his presence forever. So here we are at the end of time. Um, I wonder what we should talk about. I have an idea. Let's talk about our response to this great event in human history. I know, I know, there's a lot of grim and awesome imagery in this chapter, but look, most of this we've heard before, and I think there's much less value in examining every image than there is in thinking about what all of it means to us. I mean, trivia is fun, but I still have to live. So what does all this mean for me in my real life? So the better question is, what is our response to the end of time? How do we react when we read these chapters and hear again about the culmination of history and the utter defeat of God's enemies, of those who reject him outright. Well, I think we have two options. There are people who are waiting for that day, and people who are living for this one. Now, many people hear this passage of Revelation and go into a faith-holding pattern. They go to church, they tithe, they're kind of puppies. They do the normal day-to-day things that people do, but in their hearts, they live in suspended animation, waiting for that day. So many people are simply waiting And they do it for a couple reasons. First, I think some people look forward to the destruction of the world with a sense of glee over the fact that the bad people are finally going to get theirs. I call this group the Glee Club. And I find the Glee Club a bit curious. I mean, we're all a little anxious for God's enemies, you know, the ones who mock and ridicule God and his church. We want them to get their comeuppance, right? Haven't you ever had that feeling inside? You know that feeling when some self-righteous jerk gets in your face and explains how utterly diluted you have to be to buy into this whole God thing. And just a little bit, we think to ourselves, someday he'll get his. Problem is, this isn't the way God thinks. If you think about grace, it's, it's really kind of amazing. And what we find in scripture 
are a host of passages that talk about God's love and how much God wants a relationship with each one of us. We see in scripture how infinitely valuable every human being is, how infinitely valuable human life is, and if God thinks that way about people, then so should we. It ought to pain us that so many people will go down in flames, being eternally separated from God, even if they are getting exactly what they demanded from God in the first place. It ought to bother us. We ought to feel God's pain at losing so many to the dragon who has deceived them into believing the most pernicious lie of all, that neither he nor God exists. The Glee Club longs for that day and celebrates the destruction to come. We ought to be a little cautious about that attitude. Second, some folks seem to live in a state of dread or in a level of fear that to some degree paralyzes them. Think about it. How many times in the last 20 years have you heard or read someone say that we are living in the end times? That happens so often it's almost impossible to avoid. So we live in this perpetual state of fear over a number of things, right? What if time is so short I I can't do the things I want to in this life? What if friends or loved ones don't have the time they need to come to know Jesus and when the last day comes, they're doomed to destruction? What, What if I'm not saved? What if on that day Jesus calls me out of line? Because I was not really his to begin with. All of these fears can plague us to the point where we can't really live. We stop striving to achieve our dreams because what's the point anyway? Or we fail to interact properly with this world because we're so focused on the fear of going to hell. Or We live in a constant state of confession so that we won't get caught on that day with, with all of our sin on. And the result is we're not fully engaged with today or with our Jesus who wants to walk through this day with us, just because we're so focused on that day. And third, I think some folks think Christianity is just about the future. It's, it's about a future time when we'll finally see God and have fellowship with Jesus and live in a perfect world free from pain and suffering. It's about reaping the eschatological benefits of our religion that come in some future time when all this comes to pass. These aren't bad people. They're just people who are misinformed. They think Christianity is like life insurance, right? You only collect that when you die. But I'm convinced that these are the wrong responses to Armageddon. Let me describe the kind of attitude I wish I had. The attitude I hope to try to cultivate myself to get myself out of insurance mode. Armageddon marks the ultimate victory by God over his and our enemies. That means that all of life is answered in this one culminating event. The fact that life has a purpose is no longer speculation. It's in the books, in indelible ink. Life has meaning, and that meaning is life with God, a personal relationship with the king of the universe who created me. The reality of this revelation is that all of my fears and concerns are answered in that moment at Armageddon. It's over. And since all of my fears and anxieties are answered, I no longer have to worry about them. You see, in the book of Revelation, John is telling us not rumor, right? It's not a rumor he's heard. He's not passing on secondhand info. He's telling us what he saw, which is so John, right? I've probably mentioned, I love 1 John, right? One of the reasons I love 1 John so much is the way it begins. It starts out this way. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have beheld and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, That's what we proclaim to you. You see, for John, this was deeply personal. He wanted everyone to know that he wasn't passing on rumors or secondhand information. What he was telling people was what he had firsthand information about. 
He heard Jesus speak. He saw him and beheld his miracles and even held him in his hands. It's a spectacular message delivered from an eyewitness and an earwitness and someone who touched Jesus. Do you know what we get in Revelation? It's the same thing. John is not telling us what the priests had said or what the Pope would say or what his cronies all thought up on their own. He is passing on a vision, something he saw firsthand. So John actually witnesses this vision, a vision of Armageddon and all its destructive, chaotic magnificence. All of my fears and anxieties are waylaid, not by a rumor, but by firsthand report of what happened, past tense, in our future. Which means I am now free. I'm free, and so are you. When Paul proclaimed the idea of freedom to the Galatian church, people freaked out. All they understood was the law. To be a Christian meant first becoming obedient to the law. They had such a hard time grasping the idea of being free, but we are. We have been set free, and one of the greatest images of that freedom is Armageddon. See, without all my doubts and fears and anxieties about the future, I am free to live for Christ today. I am free to walk with God just as Enoch did today. I'm free to reap the benefits of my insurance policy today. Being a Christian, living a life in a personal relationship with God began the moment I believed in him. It's not about the law. It's not about the fear. It is all about the life God has promised us. And John's vision of Armageddon assures us the victory is in the books. I am free to walk with God. That means every step I take apart from him is actually a step I choose to take alone. Every step taken with my hand in his is a step he was actually begging me to take with him. He calls me to put on his yoke to walk with him. This is the life he established in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It's the life we hope for in the future and have possession of right now. The promise God made on the cross is fulfilled not only in the resurrection of Christ, but also in the final victory over God's enemies. The absolute knowledge that the confusion and pain and suffering and uncertainty of this life is not out of God's control and that he has already, albeit in our temporal future, set it right with the ultimate victory over evil, sets me free. I am free from fear and doubt and anxiety and law. I am free to do what God calls me to do without worrying about what I won't have time to achieve. As a believer, all I have is time. I have eternity. When this world ends, my life will continue in the new one that God will establish. I am free to take bold steps in obedience to him, not worrying about my inadequacies or failures. If I fail, or should I say when I fail, or sin, or fall short, I know that my God loves me and has already forgiven me and will pick me up and set me on the path again so I can risk for him, not worrying about anything, but just focusing on him. I am free to love those who might be unbelievers. I am free to make and keep relationships with those who don't know Jesus. I am free to love them and to tell them about Jesus in the way that I live and the things that I say and help them to trust God with their future. I'm free not to carry the burden of their salvation, but simply to walk with God and to speak when he says to speak and to love always and to walk with him. Every one of my cares explodes in the moment of Armageddon. My God is the victor. My Jesus has won. I am his, and he will lose none of those he has sealed. 
And when the smoke clears, I will continue to live with him forever. Now that's freedom. Okay, I want to pray for you right now. And as always, don't take your eyes off the road or off the kids. Just keep your eyes and your mind on what you're doing right now. And just let your hearts pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for this great promise, this promise that you have put in the books for us, victory. This whole book of Revelation, Lord, is a victory song, celebrating the victory that you have already achieved. Your enemies cannot overcome you. Your enemies cannot overcome your people. You have won this for us and you have set us free. And we praise you. Lord, for all those listening, I pray that you would make this promise real. Settle it down in our hearts and help us to live it out every day. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good to talk to you again and be with you. Hopefully we'll be looking at something maybe new, maybe exciting very soon. Until then, peace.